Dory and I had the sweet privilege of going to see the documentary about Mr. Rogers this week. I don't know if many of you have witnessed that, but it was a, it was a sweet treat to she and I. And I learned something about Mr. Rogers. The whole story that has impacted millions of children was based on and inspired by his troubled childhood. You see, I learned that, that Mr. Rogers, he was a little overweight, he struggled with being bullied, his parents weren't fond of strong emotions or entertaining big questions, and so it left him lonely, isolated. I don't know if this is much different than, than many childhoods. I don't, I don't think he was at all articulating that he was being neglected, but nevertheless, the impact of the bullying and the isolation ultimately inspired this show to, with puppets and with very simple sets to reach into homes and to tell kids that they're loved. You see, Mr. Rogers, up until he was grown, he wouldn't have said that God was at work in his life. I mean, how could he be in those challenging situations as a little boy? It was only later that he saw that that the Lord actually used that, that God was actually present in his bedroom with his puppets and with a couple friends he had, that God was at work, even though he didn't see him. Because what, what has impacted so many was a result of those hard times. You see, this morning we're going to read a story about a woman who suffered a similar temptation. You know, she, she didn't see that God was at work. In his silence, she believed perhaps that he was absent. And his providential working was, was blind to her heart. Now, I don't, I don't think the text doesn't tell us that, that there was some sort of uh, malicious intent from her. I think, kind of like how the, the ocean sort of pats against the, the sand slowly but surely, creating these beautiful shells. I think that she was just under this malaise of slowly but surely thinking, you know, God's not, God's not at work. Kind of subtle, a callous effect, cataracts that some, sometimes come over our eyes. You know, what's so compelling about this story is I don't know about you, but that's, that's how I feel a lot of the time. I don't think that God's at work. I come here each week and I confess that He is, but I function as though I'm the head honcho. My productivity is what gives me confidence. So Esther's story is as relevant as it could ever be. A woman who arrives at this place of absolute prominence. She's at the second highest position in all the ancient world at this time. And oh, by the way, she got there from some pretty sketchy means. She's an orphan girl, no, no parents, raised by an uncle, had sex before she was married, was silent about her Jewish identity. And this is who God used to display his boldness and his mission to restore his people. Find your place in that story this morning as we read it. That God is at work in your life. Though you and I are tempted to think otherwise and therefore frees us to act boldly. So this morning, let's, uh, let's look at Esther chapter 4. I'm actually going to start 
um, in verse 1, and then I'll skip down. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, um, and then, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And real, real quick, I don't know if you've, you've read this story recently, or perhaps you've never heard it, but Mordecai is Esther, her uncle, or excuse me, her, her older cousin. And he referenced to something having been done. Well, in the ancient city of Susa, the king there, was his, his name was Xerxes. And his right-hand man, his henchman, his latest governor, was a man by the name of Haman. And one day, Haman and Mordecai crossed paths. And Mordecai refuses to bow to him because he was a follower of God. And he chose instead to, to not bow. Well, this infuriated Haman. So much so, he issues a decree to exterminate all the Jews in this city. All because he believes that Mordecai has acted treasonously. So this is the, the immediate um, story that leads into ours. So Mordecai learned of what had all been done, that decree, and he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth. Then skip down to verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened, and the exact sum of money that Haman, that evil governor, had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8. Mordecai also gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and furthermore command her to go to the king to beg for favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say this, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And as for me, I've not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Verse 12, And they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will certainly perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also go fast and go. Also fast as you do, excuse me. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Heavenly Father, these are some bold words that we get to hear your servant Esther speak. How she got to that place is truly a work of your grace. Would you now do that same work in our hearts? 
as we see what it means to follow after you with our minds, with our hearts, and, and with our hands. Be with us now. Speak to us, we pray, through your word. Amen. So the question is, how did this timid, orphaned girl come to a place where she acted so boldly? What was it? And therefore, how then can we move in the same direction? Well, this morning, I want us to see three movements that Esther makes in this story as she arrives at this moment of boldness. Because in seeing them, I'm, I'm hoping that you and I can also see these same movements as tangible, as something to reach and actually hold on to as we move out in our places of influence to act boldly. So the first is this. She recognized her position. The first movement that Esther makes is she recognizes her first, her position. Looking back at verse 8, Mordecai also gave a copy of the decree issued in Susa, Susa that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her that she could go on the, to the king on, on their behalf and beg for favor and plead with them for her people. What is Mordecai begging Esther to do? He's saying, look around, Esther. See where you are. See the position that God has placed you in. She had been living these, you know, I don't know, we don't know how long, in the king's palace. And as we began our time together, she, she really wasn't aware that God was at work. And, and Mordecai sends up this decree and says, Esther, see where you are. See where God has placed you. And then use it to leverage it for the sake of your people. Look around, see. You see, this first movement is one of observation. It's just a matter of seeing the places in which God has placed us even today so that we would see that He's at work placing us even there for His purpose. You see, uh, Esther was in the capital city of the greatest known power at the time, Persia. And King Xerxes was the king and she was married to him as queen. She had this privileged place. This was where all authority, all culture, everything that flowed in the whole region of the ancient Middle East came to this one spot, and she was number two. Well, not quite, because there were probably you know, princes and, and all the rest. But nevertheless, she was the queen. If someone had the opportunity to leverage their position in favor for her people, it was her. And Mordecai was like, wake up. Recognize the position that God has placed you in. And we don't have to move far from this text to, to ask the same question of you and I. Where has he placed you? And how is he asking you to then use that place as a point of leverage for the sake of his mission and his kingdom? Now, if you're like me, when you hear that question, you go real quick to lofty things, real noble ideas. You know, I need to start a nonprofit or move to a third world country. Uh, well, maybe you don't. But at any rate, what we try to do is we try to distance ourselves from the very moment that God has placed us by trying to find something that we simply cannot attain. So this morning, as, as the Lord asks you, or invites you to consider where he's placed you, just think about your work. Think about your family situations. Think about your friendships, the relational capital that you have. The very things that as you think about your life in this very moment, that is where God has placed you. 
Now, I feel like I need to throw out one disclaimer here. There may be some of you in this room that to hear these words is, is almost salt to the wound. You're in a situation that was not of your own doing. And you're the, the, the situation you find yourself in is the result of someone else's sin against you. And so this morning, don't hear me say that God has called you to that place. Find a way to, to, to make it better. This morning, hear that God is with you. And find comfort that God was with Esther. But others of us, just think about it. your day-to-day week. Where are you at? Where, what places has God put you in that he's asking you to consider where he's placed you for his, his work, for his kingdom's work? Maybe it's, you know, reducing the profit margin in, in, in place of your work so that you could help someone out. Maybe it's, you know, hanging around with some different folks. Maybe it's something to do with, with your parents, with, for grandparents perhaps. Your position of sort of the wisdom, hopefully, of your family. Use that position to speak life and truth into your family. And finally on this point, some of you, kind of like Esther, may find yourself in a position that you got there kind of shadily. I don't know if that's a word. If they got you there. That, that it, you know, when push comes to shove, you don't really like to think about it. But look to Esther. God still used, even though she, she came to this through sin, through silence. She never spoke a word about her religion until she identified herself in this very bold moment. God is willing to use you. Will you look? Will you see where he's placed you? Because it's intentional, and it's by his providential hand that you're there. So maybe you're not convinced. So, Scott, that was a nice try, but that was just, meh. That didn't really hit me. Well, notice the second thing that we see Esther do. If we look back at verse 11 and 13, Esther makes this movement of realizing the danger. So She recognizes her place, and now she realizes the danger. Look at how she responds to Mordecai in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king without being called, only one thing happens death, unless by some whim of favor he extends the scepter and you live. And by the way, it's been 30 days since I've even been there. Esther's like, Mordecai, do you know what you're asking me to do? This is a death sentence. There's only one outcome here. You see, (laughs) to go to the king unbidden was, was a death wish. Everyone knew it. And to make matters worse, those 30 days, what Esther's pointing to is, you know, the king had a harem of, of women um, that he would invite upon his whims into his courts in the evening. And what Esther is saying is not only is this the law that I can't do it, but she's like, he hasn't even thought of me for a month. So to make matters worse, you're, you're asking me to, you know, to kill myself, to kill myself. But catch what Mordecai says in return. He says uh, in verse 13 here, Do not think yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He says, Esther, I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. You see, 
I, you're not somehow immune because you're in this insulated place. All Jews means you, Esther. That's a hard pill to swallow. But I think there's something even more pertinent here in what he's trying to dig at. You see, the moment that you think that your position, your place, your clout, your resources, the moment that you think that those things that sort of make up your life and who you are, the moment that they become something that you're afraid to risk, they've already eaten you. They've already destroyed you, Esther. He's saying you're dead meat anyway if you think that where you are is somehow protecting you. You're finding security in that. And gosh, that hits hard. I don't know if you could pull out your imaginary business card. And it's got your name on it. There's a title beneath it. Parent, student, teacher, businessman or woman, philanthropist. Well, I don't know. Fill in the blank. Imagine that that's just cut away. What does that do to you? Gosh, my, my first reaction is, no way. No way. You know, for me, that would be like, gosh, uh, you know, Skylar, you're not really supposed to be a pastor. Are you okay with that? Or, you are, but there's nowhere to go. Man, that, that cuts me quick. And I don't know, like... If, if you answer that question, are you willing to risk that? Because if you're not, Mordecai is challenging us today that it's already hamstrung you. It's already got you in its grip. So it's, Esther realizes the danger, and it's not, a very, it's not right here in front of you. It's subtle. It's lurking. It's seeking to grab your heart for you to cling to it as your identification. That is the true killer. That is it. And then finally, um, the last movement that we see Esther make, she responded to grace. So she saw her position, she realized the danger, and finally she responds to grace. Look with me in in verse... uh, 15. Let's see here. This is that moment. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will do the same. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Well, that's great. How did she do that? There's something missing here. What you have to do is you have to look at the very end of verse 14. When Mordecai says these words that we all kind of know. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One commentator suggests that that word come is, is in the passive form. And could be translated have been brought. What is Mordecai saying? He's saying... Esther, you're a passive recipient of grace, that you sit where you do. You didn't come here on your own. You didn't establish this window of opportunity. The Lord has set you here. Will you see what it is? Will you not cling to it as your own identity? And you, will you respond to the grace that I have now given you? 
And that is a, man, that's, that was what, seven words that the story gives us that she went from, you know, arrogant, timid woman to free and bold. Kind of a vague grace statement. And this is where I think you and I can find freedom to act in kind. We're not in palaces and we're not saving people by the hundreds and thousands. But we are invited to participate. To leverage our position, our place for the sake of his kingdom. And this is how. You see, there was a holiday as a result of this story. And it's called Purim. Maybe you've heard of it. But it's a Jewish holiday that celebrates this redemptive moment. And they say it's, you know, it's probably one of the least sacred. They've kind of really turned it into a party. But what are they celebrating? Are they celebrating her character as a bold woman? Maybe. They're celebrating their rescue. Their redemption. You see, Esther's first audience, and I think you and I, we're in danger of trying to be like her before we see her as a rescuer. Fast forward in the story. We know it. Jesus comes. He leaves the greatest palace. He, he leaves the glory that he has earned, that is his, inherently. He identifies with you and me. And he comes and he mediates on our behalf. You see, before we can ever follow Jesus, before we can ever, what would Jesus do? We have to see, what has Jesus done? What has Esther done? Guys, if we leave this place saying, I want to be bold, I want to strap on the boots and really go for it, we'll fizzle out. That's motivation by guilt. And we're actually just using a performance measure to see how good we're doing. But if we see Esther first, if we see Jesus first as rescuer, as redeemer, then we're free. Boldness is a simple after effect. This is the irony of our hero this morning. She was not bold. But as she saw where she was, she wasn't hemmed in, she almost was, by her position, by her clout. She began to see in this just vaguest statement of Mordecai that such a time as this, you've been placed here, that she responded boldly. I don't know if you've caught the story of the, the cave that collapsed on the, the young uh, soccer team in Thailand. And uh, a dozen boys and, and their coach were trapped in this cave for, I think, 16 days. And I think the last one finally emerged, I don't know, a couple days ago now. Well, if you've been following the story, the, the heroes of this story were actually three British men who located these boys. Thailand's Navy SEALs had not yet found them, and they couldn't figure out a way to find them. So a businessman in the UK reached out to the Thailand's government and says, hey, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a caver. And I have, you know, contacts with the best cave divers in the world. You need to reach out to these three men. So the officials did, and here they come. Robert, I think, is one. John is another. 55-year-old um, normal men who are not professionals. This is what they do in their, you know, as volunteer time. 
And guys, they're the ones that located these children. One of the news reporters said, why did you come and do it? And he said, there was a job to be done. They might sign a book deal next week. I don't know. But right now, as the story goes, they weren't seeking greatness. They weren't seeking to be bold. I don't even know their faith story. But they, they, they knew they had skills. They knew that they had talents. And by the way, they've helped in this rescue missions twice before in different parts of the world. And this was just, I've got the tools. I'm responding out of it. Esther responded how she did because she knew that where she was was a total gift. She wasn't trying to be a strong person, and yet it just came out of her. And she displays one of the greatest images of boldness that we see, of courage. Folks, that is, that is what God has invited us to this morning. Just a real quick piece of application, and we'll close our time when we look at how Esther did this, she identified with her people and she mediated on their behalf. If we want to find a pattern, that's the same pattern of Jesus. There's solidarity and there's action. You see, when Esther first heard about Mordecai, she sent a cloak. She felt sorry. She was sad. And by the end of it, she's locking arms with Mordecai. And begging the king for favor. She moved from compassion, or excuse me, uh, sympathy to empathy. She identified, identified with her people and leveraged that moment to help to mediate. Who's in your life now? Who are the weaker? Who are the less? Who are those that in your spheres, I don't know if it's family, I don't know if it's neighbors, I don't know if it's coworkers, where you can move from a pat on the back to... What's it like to be you? And then using your influence. Guys, this church, I had one missionary tell me that you support. All roads lead to Thomasville. Guys, we are chock full of talent and influence. And I mean it sincerely. This is a gifted group of folks. What would it look like for us to see? Because we can see now, right? We can see when we've been rescued. We don't have to be noble about our efforts. We can be behind the scenes. It doesn't matter like these divers. But who is it in your life to lock arms and to use your influence for them? That's what it means to be bold. You've been saved for such a time as this. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Thank you. Thank you that we have clear eyes. They get muddled each and every day. Just as Tim mentioned, we, our appetites just control us. You created us for appetite, but Lord, sometimes we just, we just don't see. Lord, meet us with your grace, we pray. Help us to see that boldness is not a result of our, of our gumption. It's a result of knowing that we're free. Would you now empower us to send us out to be your people in this place? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.